Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing really well. So happy to be spending my afternoon with you. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, I cannot believe we're already in June. Right? This month, this year. Has flown by it so quickly. It absolutely has flown by. And it's nice to start to see our world thinking about reopening and going back to all of the special social occasions that we love to do, the vacations and graduations and weddings. Yeah, you know, my daughter texted me yesterday and she said, you know, we were going to do July of next year, but I think we're going to do this year. What do you think of that? And I said, I think that's fabulous. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. So yeah, we've had weddings on our mind. There's something wonderful about a spring, summer bride. You know, there's that ubiquitous June bride and the orange blossoms and it calls to mind beautiful flowers and people gathering together. And it's made me think about all the fun and interesting traditions that we have that are related to weddings. Me too. When I think about weddings, I think about wedding cakes because I used to make wedding cakes. And I didn't know that. I did. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. A lot of work, I imagine. It's a lot of work. So what really is the functional difference between, say, a wedding cake and, I don't know, just like your average birthday cake? I think that the functional difference of a wedding cake and a birthday cake is obviously you have two very different celebrations, right? Mm -hmm. The wedding cake, you know, it's really the centerpiece. It's the centerpiece of the reception. It's the first place that people migrate to in the reception Mm -hmm. hall. And I think that it gives a glimpse into the couple's life together now and maybe even into the future. That's interesting. It feels like this visual representation of the couple. Mm -hmm. And today, more than other eras, people are eschewing that traditional white tiered cake for cakes Mm -hmm. that are in the shape of the couple's favorite hobbies, like golf bags or race cars, or decorated for a specific season that the wedding takes place, like a black Halloween wedding cake. Right. Or maybe even a special location or landmark to the couple, like a volcano cake that actually spews smoke. Or chocolate. Or (laughs) chocolate lava. Yeah. You you can tell where my preferences lie. (laughs) Right? There's a lot of speculation around the origins of the wedding cake. And like so many origin stories, it really depends upon who you talk to, who you read, when it was written, or even who has the political power. Right? That's true. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. There are accounts of rituals in ancient Rome where at the end of a wedding celebration, it was customary to break a cake that was made of must and flour called mustaceum over the head of the bride. And then the couple would actually eat some of the crumbs and the guests would gather up the rest of it. 
And much like a lot of our other conversations regarding ingredients imparting specific traits onto whoever consumed them, Mm -hmm. this custom seems to symbolize the joining together, the bride and the groom eating together, and good fortune, the cake itself symbolizing abundance. The earliest recorded recipe in Britain that was specifically indicated for wedding ceremonies was called a bride's pie. And it's a recipe from The Accomplished Cook by Robert May in 1685. And it was this large round pie that was really ornately decorated. The filling was comprised of oysters, pine kernels, coxcombs, lambstones, which are testicles, sweetbreads, and spices. And I have to think. Wow. I'm trying to imagine how that would taste it probably actually was pretty good because that's a lot of like really flavorful components it's unusual by today's standards but i can also start to imagine some of the symbology of those ingredients exactly a lot of the ingredients were and still are considered aphrodisiac foods right we talked about oysters in our aphrodisiac episode lamb stones which are the testicles obvious correlation to fertility correlation Mm -hmm. The spices, again, lots of spices are considered aphrodisiacs. And they even have, especially the spices during this time, they were really connected to affluence. Even the number of ingredients in this recipe is associated with abundance. And to be lacking those ingredients would say something about who you were and and what your social standing was. Yes. As well. Yes. There, there are also accounts of bride's pies and fruitcakes that have items baked inside of them. Yay! Those yeah. are my favorite. I, I love Ooh. these cakes. I love these styles of cakes. I'm always fascinated about them. Please tell me more. Each of the items held a specific meaning. They would have coins in them, which obviously symbolized success and abundance. Thimbles, which represented spinsterhood or bachelorhood. Aww. Or a ring, which indicated an upcoming marriage. And then there was another recipe that I found in The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Simple by Hannah Glass. She was a very popular cookbook author in the 18th century. And you actually mentioned her in our curry episode. Yay! And it's obvious that this cake was meant for some kind of a huge celebration. It included four pounds of flour, 32 eggs, six pounds of dried fruit, and a half a pint of brandy. The interesting thing was the way that this cake was iced. After it was baked, the icing mixture, which was double refined sugar, egg whites, musk, ambergris. Oh, wow. Which is a super interesting ingredient. That is a really fascinating ingredient. It's essentially the undigested beak of giant squid that's surrounded by a secretion from the bile ducts as it passes through a sperm whale's digestive system. Oh my goodness. Yep, it takes years to form, but it's highly prized as a food delicacy. It's aphrodisiac. Of and <laughs> if you've ever worn Chanel number no. five, you've likely spritzed this onto you. Yes, ambergris smells amazing. Mm-hmm. It is one of those aromas that we're we're going to have to like double back on this yes. topic another time yep. because it is hands down one of those aromas that is, for me at least, instantly attractive. I think it smells like heaven. I'm fascinated a little bit about its inclusion in, on one hand, from a aroma standpoint, I can understand why you would include it in a cake. But at the other hand, it does seem like a very esoteric ingredient. Yes. Because yeah. that would be a lot of aroma. Does it have, does ambergris have a flavor? I, I don't, that's, we're going to have to circle back around on that one and talk about that one. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. And then back to the recipe. Sorry. No, no worries. <laughs> orange flower water and now this mixture is beaten for two hours oh <laughs> i'm not entirely sure how that fits into plain and easy but okay hannah <laughs> two hours and then it's spread over the cake uh-huh. and it's put back into the oven to dry so that it becomes oh, this hard yeah oh almost like a fondant uh, or a meringue, you know, it hardens. Yeah. I'm so curious about this. I would love to recreate this because I, I want to know what it smells like and what it tastes like. The orange flower, I, I get because that's a bridal symbol is it, orange right. blossoms. Yep. Um, even the 32 eggs make sense given right. what we know about eggs. But I'm really fascinated about this ambergris and orange flower water. Mm-hmm. And then the this process, like right. what how that would actually turn out. So what the ingredients for the icing resulted in was this really pure white colored mm. icing. There's a couple of reasons that we're starting to see these white iced cakes. The first and the most obvious is that in Western cultures, specifically, white is symbolic of purity and virginal attributes, mm-hmm. which were very important in wedding ceremonies, the virginal attributes mostly. Mm-hmm. For the women. I was just going to say, for the women. <laughs> <laughs> and second, it stems from the fact that the pure white ingredients were expensive. Oh, yeah. So a white cake denoted your status in society. No wonder they became so prized as part of the wedding ritual. Right. Because that's a special cake. That is not your average birthday cake. No. They must have been delicious. Because if they weren't, this is not a tradition that would have endured, I would imagine. Right. Jumping back to the 17th century, there was another speculation that the wedding cake was born again in Victorian England. And in his book, Brides and Bridals, J.C. Jefferson writes, and I quote, with the arrival in England of French confectionery skills and the influences of the restoration of 1660, which was when King Charles II was restored to the throne, that piles of cakes was consolidated with an overall covering of icing and decoration. This one's kind of been debated. King Charles II had some very interesting eating habits. So you could see how this opulence could certainly have started during that time. And then to seal the deal, you had Queen Victoria's wedding to Prince Albert in 1840. And their cake was decorated with white icing, which became known as royal icing. Oh, is that where it got that origin? That's where it came from. Oh, okay. I never knew that. It was multi-layered. It was decorated with two turtle doves, symbolizing purity and innocence, a dog, symbolizing faithfulness, cupids, and Britannia, the helmeted female warrior who personified Britain itself. And, you know, this concept of using pastry to symbolize status and personality and tradition, it's really not new. Mm -hmm. It just seems to follow social norms. Mm Mm-hmm. I have particularly noticed in recent years the idea of having multiple flavors, having multiple cakes, or having one that is for cutting, for the ceremonial cutting of the cake, and yet there's sheet cakes back in the kitchen to feed the masses. Yep. Because weddings have gotten quite large. In some cases, people spend more on their cake than they do on the bride's gown. Yeah. And that's why I was asking, too, what the difference is between a, a wedding cake and a birthday cake. I feel like I've got the sense of that now. Well, do you want to hear what I've come up with to talk about today? Yeah, I'm very excited. (laughs) So when I was getting ready for this episode, I informally pulled my friends and asked them, besides cake, which foods are synonymous with weddings? 
And the answers, like my friends, were both funny and serious. <laughs> so here's some of them. Punch with Sprite, juice, and sherbet. Mm-hmm. Chicken. Dry chicken. Yes. Chicken or fish. <laughs> Buttermints. Groom's cake, which we can talk about another time. Croque and bouche, which was a surprisingly highbrow answer that I was not expecting. One of my Jewish friends chimed in. I'm so glad that she did. Kugel or bagels and locks for a modern Jewish wedding. Cheese straws. Prosciutto wrapped melon or asparagus. Bohemian stew, which I've huh. never heard of. And, but the most common answer was Jordan almonds. Mm -hmm. So Jordan almonds had almost immediately come to mind for me when we planned to talk about this. And I was curious whether they were all that common anymore, because there are plenty of traditions and superstitions about what we do and what we don't do on our wedding days. And lots of things fall in and out of fashion. I've gone to weddings and I've received Jordan almonds as favors, although I never really knew what to do with them. I knew I was supposed to eat them, but I didn't know anything else about them. Before I started my research, if I was to describe to a complete stranger who never had seen or heard of a Jordan almond before what it was, they're basically they're almonds that are sugar panned in a variety of pastel colors. If you've ever eaten an M&M, it's the shell that covers the chocolate. I had no idea why they were called Jordan almonds, nor really why they were wedding related food, typically doled out in a small tool bag as a favor. What I found out was straight up fascinating, and I almost wish I could get married again just so that I could (laughs) properly serve Jordan almonds and get up and give a little lecture about Jordan almonds. But I digress. So Jordan almonds belong to a form of confectionery with a hard outer shell known as drage in French or confetti in Italian and not to be confused with the paper confetti that we think of or cuffetta or Moibus. It's got a lot of names in a lot of different cultures. In this form, the confectionery has a twofold purpose. So in addition to the basic consumption of what you're eating, in this case, almonds and sweet shell, it can also be symbolic or medicinal or maybe even just decorative. And so this really takes me back to the many conversations that we've had about something being more than just nutritional, but having a transformative or ceremonial purpose as well. And the almond in particular does have a rich history of being associated with fertility. So this bit comes from Tamara Andrews' Nectar and Ambrosia, an Encyclopedia of Food and World Mythology from 2000. Quote, the almond tree originated in the Middle East and Western Asia, and since prehistory, people considered it a symbol of sweetness and fragility. In the spring, the tree was one of the first to bloom, and late frost could easily destroy its delicate buds. If the almond tree survived the frost, it soon became a bestower of a wealth of gifts. In addition to providing nuts, oil, and shells for fuel, the almond tree was aesthetically pleasing, with lovely flowers and beautiful leaves. So the almond tree inspired worship. The identification of the almond as father or as mother reflected the fact that almond blossoms herald the spring, and thus the birth of vegetation. Because the almond tree blossoms suddenly, Hebrews considered it a symbol of haste. And because the almond tree that survives the frost bestows gifts of nuts and oil, they considered it a symbol of vigilance. People revered the almond tree as a provider of life, of love, and of happiness. End quote. So to me, at their most basic, the Jordan almond confectionery as a wedding favor represents this blending of bitterness and sweetness that often accompanies married life. There's a lot in that, that paragraph that I feel does relate back to this principle of marriage. You have this 
long-term, if not lifelong commitment. And it's going to bring both good things, but also some sour things as well. So particularly at Italian and Greek weddings, Jordan almonds are presented in groups of five that represents happiness, health, longevity, wealth, and fertility, and or to represent the indivisibility of the couple. There is a bit of an apocryphal origin story to the Jordan almond. So the popular story is that as a sweetmeat, it was invented in 177 BCE when Julius Drogatis, a Roman baker and confectioner, accidentally dropped an almond into a jar of honey while creating sweets to celebrate the baptism of a Roman aristocrat's son. This delicacy was called Drogati or confetti and maybe more closely resemble sweetmeats that had centers of almond, hazelnuts, anise seeds, pistachios that were formed as ball and then coated in honey, and then later on sugar. I found an account of Julius Dragatis in the San Pedro News Pilot from December 26, 1917, in a bit that's actually about sugar plums, which I realized after reading this were not dried plums covered in sugar. I always thought they were, they're not. Huh. I always thought that too. So here I quote, of all candies, perhaps the sugar plum boasts the most ancient lineage. It was the invention of one Julius Dragatis, a noted Ituman baker and confectioner, a member of the family of the Fabile. Dragatis put forth the first specimen of this confection in the year 177 BC. The bonbons of this variety were called Dragati after their inventor. Drage is French. And their manufacture constituted a monopoly enjoyed exclusively by the Fabian family. Whenever there was a birth or a marriage in that family, a great distribution of Dragati took place as an evidence of rejoicing. This custom is still retained by certain of the old families of Europe. End quote. But there is another story that the sugar-coated Jordan almond was created by an apothecary in Verdun, France in the 13th century. And apothecaries were forerunners of pharmacists, says me and licensed to deal in cane sugar, according to some of the research that I've read. We have this belief that almonds aid in digestion, and so a sugar-coated almond was seen as a medicinal snack. In 1487, according to Chronicles of the Period, more than 260 pounds of confetti were consumed at a banquet held the day after the wedding of Lucretia Borgia and Alfonso d'Est, Duke of Ferrara. In another historical account in 15th century at Cambria, France, Marguerite of Burgundy, at her wedding to Guillaume IV of Hainault, wished to have sugared almonds given to the common people by her confit maker, Pierre Host. According to Candy, the sweet history, Mr. Salvatore Ferrera came to America from Nola, Italy in 1900 and founded Ferrera Pan Candy Company in 1908. At the time of his immigration from Italy, Mr. Ferrera was a confectioner skilled in the art of making sugar-coated candy almonds. Early on, they were covered in white sugar. They were candy that symbolized purity and fertility. Mm -hmm. From 1908 to 1919, the sugar-coated almond business grew exponentially. As for the Jordan almond tree itself... It rooted in American history around 1901. And yes, <laughs> pun is totally intended for that one. So according to an A to Z of food and drink, quote, there are essentially two types of almonds, bitter almonds, which contain prussic acid, which can be used in very sparing quantities as a flavoring and ordinary eating almonds. This finally explained it for me because you do have these two types of almonds. You've got this bitter tasting almond that has that kind of really strong flavor. 
And then you've got your ordinary <laughs> eating almond. So of the latter, Jordan almonds are probably the most highly regarded variety. They have no connection whatsoever with Jordan, which I thought they had, but it's not true. Their name is an alteration of Middle English jarin or garden. The Jordan almond is a little bit polarizing, either despite or because of its deep rooted history. They're seen as old fashioned, boring and passe. I think they gained ground in the U.S. as a wedding favor precisely because of the immigrant ties to Western and Central mm. Europe and because they were difficult to get for a long time. Remember, it's not until early 1900s that we were even starting to grow the right type of almond yeah. in California. Modern brides now wanting to infuse a little bit of European flair into their wedding favors have turned to like vinegars, infused olive oils, macarons, or other kind of sweet treats. The Jordan almond has declined in popularity. We have this duality to a wedding where guests are invited to receptions, which are effectively modern feasts and banquets, right? where the families of the bride and groom demonstrate their prosperity through all manners of food and drink and gifts. In turn, guests are expected to offer their support or fealty, if you will, and best wishes to the couple for happiness, health, longevity, wealth, and fertility. Back to the five Jordan almonds. And we may no longer revere the almond tree as the symbol of life, love, and happiness. And I don't mind so much the degeneration of a symbol as much as I consider what is replacing it and why. So if we're no longer overtly wishing for the couple to have happiness and prosperity, what are we doing? What is the new thing that replaces that sentiment? Or not replaces the sentiment, but what becomes the new symbol? Right. And our, our postborn life has replaced the Jordan almond with all manners of trinkets and toys. I went to a wedding where beer koozies were the favor. And what prayers or hopes am I supposed to be <laughs> offering to the couple with its use? Soap bubbles have become very popular. They've replaced rice. Soap bubbles are beautiful, fragile, and easily broken. Rice has a very strong connotation of, again, prosperity, fertility, and so what is it that we're actually saying to each other in our modern wedding rituals? Beyond weddings, what are we wishing ourselves into in general? And what are the stories and symbols that we're using to carry into our future? I love that because when you first started talking about the Jordan almonds, the first thing that popped into my head was what an amazing thing to share with your guests. Yeah. Because... Much like the wedding cake and that joining together, you're inviting your community into your lives. You're asking your community to help you to foster this relationship. And yes. I, I love the idea of that gift being those five Jordan almonds that represent not only what you're wishing for the couple, but maybe what you're wishing for yourself when you Absolutely. consume those. I'm in full support of bringing back Jordan almonds as a wedding favor. Yeah, no, me too. Like, I'm so happy that I know a little bit more about the symbology behind them because mm -hmm. I've gotten them and I've like crammed them all into my mouth. I'm going to be honest about that. <laughs> like, I, haven't, I haven't taken the time to savor each almond and to actually think with consuming this and it becoming part of my being and my being being within the network of this, we are creating this co-ritual, as you're describing, of promoting prosperity. There's so many of these beautiful thoughts and traditions that we've actually carried with us through the centuries. I just want us to be thoughtful about right. what we're doing and why. I like this idea of giving a pause and a moment to this symbol that is in front of me at this wedding. What is it meant? 
What does it mean to the couple? What does the bulldog on top of the wedding cake mean to the couple? What does the Jordan almonds in the little tool bag mean in this ritual? Because marriage is one of the most important rituals that we have in our lives, in addition to birth and death. Mm -hmm. I love all of that. And it brings up this quote that Lynn Oliver has on her website about weddings specifically. And she says, quote, weddings are considered quintessential human affirmations of the continuing march of human life, end quote. And I, I think that you're right. It's important that all of those things are thought through intentionally. Mm. As we talked about with the wedding cakes, there was also this symbolism of status within a society. But there were also other things that were symbolic of purity and mm. abundance and success. What were the five five things that we're wishing for the couple are happiness, health, longevity, wealth, and fertility? I think that a lot of times we focus on the wealth part and yeah. forget about those other four things that we're wishing, like you said, not only for the couple, but for our lives as well. Yeah. For our community, because... We all make up the fabric of the communities that we're in. And if we are experiencing happiness, health, longevity, wealth, and fertility, whatever way it is reasonable, that is true of our community as well. Our community is experiencing that, not just the individual. Weddings are are a communal activity. I'm actually a firm believer in that. And I don't mean just the bride and the groom's family. We intentionally surround ourselves with people that are witnesses to these unions that are sanctioning these unions, right, presumably, you know, that we we're affirming that this is a good union that's going to actually benefit the community. On that note, actually, we have a topic coming up next time that I think is really exciting. So talking about weddings and traditions and the idea of launching a life together, we're going to talk about one of the cooler kitchen technologies, in the Dutch ovens, because here's yes. both a tool And a style of cooking that is really unique and really popular. And if you do it right, really delicious. So I'm excited to talk about Dutch ovens. I can't wait. Whether they actually are Dutch. Are they actually Dutch? We'll have to find out. Come back and find out. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at As We Eat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. <laughs>